he politely told me that we're too early or possibly too small, which might have been the US polite way of saying it's not a good enough idea. And I don't know, you'd be able to tell me if that's true or not. There are many ways to politely pass, that's for sure. <laughs> Looking at raising capital or taking your business from Aotearoa to the world? You're in the right place. Make your mahi count with Investment Fix. Brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Kia ora. I'm Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of Investment at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. The US is a massive market that can bring huge opportunities, including when it comes to investment. In this episode of The Investment Fix, we look at how Kiwi businesses can go about raising capital in the US. And I'm talking with an absolute legend of the venture capital world, Rob Conybeer. He's been in the game in the US for over 25 years and is co-founder of the early stage VC firm Shasta Ventures. I'm also joined by pioneering Kiwi tech entrepreneur Guy Horrocks, the co-founder of the world's first commercial iPhone app company and successful US-backed data warehouse company Sol. Guy and Rob give us their take on what it is that US investors look for in a New Zealand company, how to prepare to raise capital and why networking is so important. Rob, Guy, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Now, the US is the number one target market for most of New Zealand's tech companies. And you two have a foot in both the US and New Zealand. So today we're hoping to talk about the nuances, the differences between the two, and then the opportunities for New Zealand businesses in the US. Rob, let's start with you. Can you give us a bit of a quick introduction about yourself, how long you've been in the VC game, and what Shasta Ventures is all about? I'd be thrilled to. I've been a venture capitalist for about 25 years at this point, primarily in the San Francisco Bay Area, and started out at a firm called New Enterprise Associates, also known as NEA, which is one of the largest venture capital firms in the world with billions and billions under management. Became a general partner there and then left about 17 years ago to start Shasta Ventures. The reason that I wanted to start Shasta Ventures is wanted to build something from scratch and focus on early stage investing. NEA had been moving to more and more stages and wanted to focus on an early stage. Teamed up with a couple other people. We started our first fund, which was about a $210 million fund. And over time, we've raised about $1.3 billion across five funds. We've made a number of investments, a number of companies that have gone public. Probably some of our best-known companies are Nextdoor, Nest, Eero, Anaplan, which actually has a founder that lives in New Zealand now and has actually been uh, quite active down here. And I'm at a point in my life now where I'm thinking more about where do I want to be involved, what do I want to focus on, and have really become quite involved in New Zealand over the last couple of years. And why New Zealand, Rob? Well, New Zealand's a very interesting place in that I personally have been interested in areas that are growing very rapidly. And the way that I think about it, after having lived in California for over 20 years and seen the changes that have happened, is that the California dream is not alive in California anymore. That's the reality. Whether you talk about government policies, whether you talk about people spreading, where it's not really the absolute pinnacle of the tech world anymore, the ability to build companies anywhere. And you also get into the environment, what's happened with fires, cost of living. It really goes on and on what's happened. So the way that I think about it is that the California dream is alive and well, but it's alive and well in New Zealand. 
And when you think about the values and the things that mattered for California early on, as much as anything was, it was a great place to live. It was a place where you'd want to raise your family. It was a place where you had stable government. You had balanced government. You had policies that worked. And you also had things like great weather and beaches. And when you take a look at Auckland or you take a look at some of the other cities around New Zealand, it's very, very similar right now. And I think that people lose sight of the idea that being a great place to live is actually a massive competitive advantage. And I think it's something that Kiwis don't think about as much because you live here in an amazing place with a stable government and people complain about things at the edges, when in reality, it's an amazing foundation for building companies in this day and age. Couldn't agree more. And Guy, bringing you in, you've had a pretty impressive career so far. I think you launched the world's first commercial iPhone app a couple of years ago. And then your current business solves backed by New York's Bowery Capital and Tectonic Ventures. Tell us a bit about your journey and what Solve's all about. Love to. And I love the fact that Rob said he started out at NEA because I think they were one of the first firms I went and pitched in New York. Must have been about 2011. And I met Patrick Herons, who was the partner there who runs the East Coast. And he politely told me that we're too early or possibly too small, which might have been the US polite way of saying it's not a good enough idea. <laughs> I don't know, Rob, you'd be able to tell me if that's true or not, uh, if that kind of language of you're too early is honest or not. There are many ways to politely pass, that's for sure. <laughs> I did law and finance and had a background in art. And then my last year of uni, I started a blood spatter forensic company with a couple of engineers and we built a prototype and then we won the Entree Award at Canterbury University. And that kicked me off on my entrepreneurial journey of avoiding corporate life, which was amazing. The big change for me was just when the iPhone came out, it was revolutionary, but you couldn't use it in New Zealand. And my friend Leighton Duncan and I, ended up starting Polar Bear Farm. We helped launch the jailbreak market and we hosted all the app downloads for a year before the iPhone app store launched. And then it caused a bit of a stir and we had about half the phones in the world running our software, which was pretty nuts as a couple of kids in a garage and not knowing what we were doing. And then we flew out to Silicon Valley and had a bit of a roller coaster ride there and ended up seeing Steve Jobs at Apple our first day there. That brought me to the States and then I had a company called Carnival Labs that was an iPhone app company that we built and we built apps for CNN and DreamWorks and Pepsi and all these big brands. And then we built a SaaS platform off the back of that. That was really the transition back from services to product, which we were excited about. We did a fundraise in 2013 and we were the first Kiwi company to raise from people like Google Ventures and Lara Hippo and, and New York. We ended up selling that company and the subsequent company that we worked with called Sailthrough and then Solve is my latest company and Solve is a first party data company. That sounds techy, but Apple has made some big moves protecting people's privacy after all the things like Cambridge Analytica and all the Facebook scandals. They're trying to block Facebook and Google from tracking across browsers and we're helping e-commerce companies collect and manage that data better. We've raised about $18 million Kiwi for the company, and we've got a team based in New Zealand and New York, so that's kind of where we're at. Awesome. Let's dig into the connection and attraction between the New Zealand and the US markets. And Rob, I'm going to start with you, because you've invested in a number of New Zealand businesses, ones that come to mind, Aura, Dawn Aerospace, Lawview, now Tracksuit. What makes it an appealing option for an investor on the other side of the world? If you're talking specifically about U.S. investors, and I think at the end of the day, that's where you see the largest pool of capital, 
a lot of these investors are looking more and more around the world at where are the best companies in whatever area they're interested in or they're thinking about. So it has to be a company that can compete on a global scale. So every one of the companies that we've invested in here, we believe has a global opportunity and we think has an opportunity to be the best in the world at what they do. And I think that's a very important distinction because historically, when people thought about New Zealand companies, they thought about companies that had smaller markets or their ambition might be, hey, we go from New Zealand, then we go to Australia, then we go to the rest of the world, as opposed to going directly to the United States for early customers. How early is too early for New Zealand companies if they're going to the US market? For us, we got there early and we were doing jailbreaking. So we couldn't even get a visa to stay there because the immigration department thought we were doing something illegal and they wouldn't count a visa. They're like, this isn't a proper company. But we had a lot of revenue, a lot of customers, millions of customers. So we were a little bit early before we looked legitimate on paper for the immigration department. But I think if you're trying to fundraise or go to market in terms of sales, there's two aspects to it. I always think getting to market early and getting product out early is the best thing you can do because you learn so much from that. It's quick to market and iterate and find that product market fit. And so whether you're selling or fundraising, everything takes a bit longer and building those relationships are really important. A lot of people underestimate the time it takes to do that well. They turn up and then expect to fundraise that month and and raise money and then they often don't get that round done and they come back and raise in New Zealand. Not underestimating that it takes some time, but also getting to market earlier is better. The one counter argument to that is just making sure that you've got your act together, turning up and having a glimmer of an idea and not having your ducks in a row. It's going to be harder. Going to a US investor, maybe friendly people like Rob might be more charitable, but they want to see a commitment to the market and they want to see that you either have expertise, a big vision that's going to apply to that US market or some early signals of some kind of product market fit. I don't know if you'd add to that, Rob. No, I think that's a great introduction to it. And I would say for the go-to-market strategy for a New Zealand company, it's still very similar to what you would have in the Bay Area. You start with something that's relatively local, people that you're friends with. And it does mean for a lot of companies, yeah, you'll go ahead and you'll sell to somebody in New Zealand or you'll sell to somebody in Australia, but it'll probably be where you have a relationship, you refine the product. You just don't want to wait too long to go into the US market if you want to build a global business. It depends a lot on the category. We're investors right now in Zeno, which is building next generation space torquers for pointing spacecraft at the ground. And they have a solution. It's about a tenth the volume, a tenth the power requirements. It's lighter and it replaces a very archaic method of using iron cores and copper windings for the same solution. There's nobody to sell it to in New Zealand. So they go immediately to the US, immediately to international markets. And from what I've seen, they're extremely well received. The really good news for Kiwi companies selling into the US is all of the New Zealand clean, green, tourism, beautiful, trustworthy brand, it gets you the meetings and people will assume that they can trust you. And you really can't overstate the importance of that. And I think relative to some other countries in the world, it's a massive competitive advantage. So you can go ahead and you can get that meeting. But at the same time, the product does need to be ready. And even the early adopters, they probably want to see something. With Zeno, they probably don't worry as much because it's a technical product. But if you look at something that's more of a B2B type product, you mentioned Aurora before that's doing crime reporting and analysis software for retail chains. They've 
deployed nationwide in the United States at Walmart. And I'll tell you, that attracted our attention when we were introduced to it by Movac, one of the leading venture firms here in New Zealand. And the way they got there was a different strategy. Chain in New Zealand, then chains in Australia, and then that's what they needed to go ahead and get into Walmart. But now they're at Walmart nationwide, they're expanding, and it's really a classic SaaS model, and they're the best in the world at what they do. So there are different go-to-markets that can work. They're based on some of the same principles that we were talking about, but there really is no one-size-fits-all for a Kiwi-based company on exactly how to go to market. The only thing that I think Guy will completely agree with me on is there's only a handful of companies where you can build a company that's worth billions of dollars in New Zealand without addressing the U.S. market. Agreed. Some of those U.S. investors, if you don't know them or they don't know you or your track record, they want to see some U.S. market traction, a couple of U.S. clients or at least one of the founders moving to the U.S. I think you mentioned something interesting, which is there's the U.S. customers and there's the U.S. investors. And I would argue that in general, it's far easier to get the U.S. customers than it is to get the U.S. investors. One of the key things that I think about, because I hear this from Kiwi entrepreneurs, like, how do I raise money in the U.S.? And I would tell them that the number one thing is get some U.S. customers first and you do some other things in parallel that we can talk about. But you really have to get U.S. customers, in my view, if you want to raise money from U.S.-based investors. Agreed. And we did that as well. I think one of the things we were lucky with, we had a couple of logos early on that were either global logos, like you work with Coke New Zealand, and then you go to the U.S., everyone's heard of Coke. They might not have heard of Whitakers or another great New Zealand brand. That helps you a little bit. And then we worked with some agencies over in the U.S., so we sort of worked with HBO, And so you have those logos on, even though you haven't won that client directly. There's a stepping stones that helped us. We landed a lot of big clients, DreamWorks, without meeting them to start with, just remotely from New Zealand and a good intro and a good pitch. Whereas the VCs, we all had coffees with pretty much all of them and sort of had a couple of meetings and then they raised investment. It's changed a little bit post-COVID, probably get away with a few things if you got a really hot startup. It does help. I'll bet some of it's price point and how hard it is to experiment. So... When we were talking about Aurora and Walmart going straight to deploying nationwide in the US, that was a long sales cycle to get there. But if you're a Kiwi company and you have a relatively low price point to get in, like Tracksuit, that allows people to very inexpensively track how their brand is perceived online. If you get the meeting with the US company, you have a relatively low price point and you have a few good logos on your site, there's a pretty good chance people are going to try it out because they want it to work. They're very interested in it. And then you can grow from there. Basically, I've heard, get your act together before heading to the US, including maybe getting a couple of logos or a couple of good reference customers on your books, but don't wait too long. Guy, you actually went up and moved your business yourself to the US. What is so attractive about the US? for New Zealand companies. People ask me for advice as I've got this thing mapped out, but I think if you look at my travels, an earthquake destroyed our office, which led to me moving to New York, and then a pandemic attacked New York and forced me back to New Zealand. So I'm just waiting for global catastrophes to guide my business. When you look at the attractiveness, we actually were in the early days of app building when we sort of pivoted into a work for hire shop. 
we went and pitched TVNZ and they didn't want to work with a bunch of 23 year olds, even though we'd work with HBO at that stage. I said to my business partner, I was like, look, the market's just not here yet in New Zealand. There's like hardly any money and we can't even win the deals. We may as well build our network in somewhere like New York. I think he was skeptical, which was fair enough at the time. He probably thought I just wanted to go to New York, which I did. But getting over there, I think about six months later, we'd landed CNN. To your point earlier, Dylan, Americans love opening the door to Kiwis and to Rolls Point, you know, that trust. They love the New Zealand brand. One of the best countries you can come from if you arrive in somewhere like New York City, because you will get meetings with people that sometimes you feel a little bit imposter syndrome of like, how am I getting this meeting with the head of CNN or the head of Coca-Cola? It is awesome. They open the door and they're willing to take a chance. Sometimes I feel like New Zealand being a small country, we're a little bit safe with some of our decision-making at a corporate level. And it sort of becomes a little bit of an old boys club with your friend network and people that have been around for a while. So it's a little bit harder to break in. I actually felt like it was almost easier to land contracts in the US than it was in New Zealand, which is crazy because obviously if you can on paper work with Nike or Coke or Apple, you'll take those over a smaller local brand. So the attraction was there just because the market was there. The market just wasn't there in New Zealand. Fast forward to where we are today, there's lots of big enterprise contracts in New Zealand. And I've got friends at Paloma and Smudge and some of these app building companies that are far more successful than I was. And a lot of their clients are local. So it's a hugely different market now. Let's just build on that because you've both now touched on brand New Zealand and just this ability to open doors or get a meeting. US investors, why are they so open with New Zealand? Where do they see our strengths? I would say the brand New Zealand, sometimes in our local market, we kind of nitpick and to Ross' point earlier, you sort of argue around the fringes, but even things like former Prime Minister Jacinda can be polarizing because the left and right have different views on her here, but overseas, you know, she has an amazing brand. And I think it's the contrast of seeing her ability to get some things done, like gun reform very quickly after that terrible massacre in Christchurch. Those kind of things do resonate because they see the big machine that is US government, US politics, industry, and its inability to make changes or make progress in some of these areas. They go, wow, look at New Zealand, they're able to do things so quickly. I think it builds because when people ask me like, why are you spending all this time in New Zealand and what are you doing there? (laughs) Either they say, I've always wanted to go or it was the best vacation of my life. I was talking just before about this two-week drive I took all over New Zealand, and it's something that I love doing, going into small towns. There are these genuine interactions that happen all the time here, and I think it's very intrinsic to the culture. So where I'm leading with this is that having spent and immersed myself in New Zealand as an American, Kiwis identify with the Commonwealth and they identify with the United Kingdom. But New Zealand is far closer culturally to the United States than it is to the United Kingdom. So there's the heritage of, we're part of the Commonwealth, but the reality is it's very close to the US in terms of time zones, in terms of entrepreneurship. And it's pretty remarkable how globally aware Kiwis are relative to other parts of the world. So my point being that cultural closeness is part of the reason that people in the United States are so intrigued and interested by New Zealand is because in some ways it's much more accessible than the UK or Europe to the average American. I want to dig now into what investors look for 
And Rob, maybe I'll start with you. What do you look for in an investment? And what was it about those New Zealand companies you've already invested in that attracted you to them? I go back to the very first principle, which is can they build a large, valuable company? That's really where it starts. Is it a problem that matters? Is it a problem where I can build a go-to-market on a relatively small amount of money where I can get my first customers and then get those first customers to help with the second set of customers and the third set of customers and grow? When I'm looking outside the US, one of the things I care a lot about is stability of the financial environment, the government, et cetera. If you're successful, can you get your money out? Can you realize the value? One of the things I do look for is, is there that global opportunity? And are those entrepreneurs aware of their global competition? And I think this is incredibly important, especially when you're in a smaller market. Yes, people will want to take the meeting with me, but to win that business and scale, I have to fundamentally have a better proposition than other people building companies in the United States. So that's really one of the key things that I look for. Going back to Zeno, their IP came out of one of the local universities here in New Zealand. And it's really unique. They have the ability to manipulate superconductors in a way that other people haven't figured out. But when I look at that, I can see it as being something that'll be a sustainable competitive advantage going forward. Other companies like Tracksuit, as much as anything, it's the hustle of the founders and the market understanding. And then they build momentum and then they become the standard that other people are compared against. I mentioned these two examples because I think there are two areas in particular that I'm intrigued by in New Zealand. One is the space opportunity, and I could spend hours talking about why it's interesting here. And the other is business-to-business SaaS. One of the things that's happened is because there have been some early successes, there have been local experts here. So the founders and the startups here can get advice from people like, these names will be familiar to Kiwis, but they won't be familiar to people in the US, Serge Van Dam, Rowan Simpson, There are other people that have real experience and expertise in building SaaS companies and building value in these companies. And the people that I look for are the ones that have already spent the time with some of these local advisors because A, they've understood I need to go to talk to some of these people to figure out how to build this stuff. And then B, more often than not, they're the ones that are standing on the shoulders of early successful entrepreneurs and advisors that are going to make it more likely them to be successful as they scale the business. And Guy, you've managed to raise capital out of US investor. What do you think a New Zealand company needs to look like to attract US investment? And what do you think you got right with Solve? Solve was a little bit easier because we'd just come off a large sale with Salesforce. Once you've had that repeat founder and had a big success, it is a lot easier to do that initial seed round, (laughs) angel and seed round. With Carnival, in those early days, I didn't really know how to fundraise. And so I think the one good thing was that I knew how to do enterprise sales well, and it's very much relationship building. You actually have to build relationship and touch points. The idea of just asking for something straight off, and when you haven't actually provided any value, is not really how things work. It doesn't work on the internet that way. It doesn't sort of work in real life with the relationships. Provide three bits of value before you actually make an ask. It's actually quite hard to do that in a lot of situations. And giving without the expectation of getting something in return goes against the mentality of a startup founder or salesperson where you're trying to always close, you're always trying to hit a target, you're always trying to get sales in the door. But in actual fact, if you play that long game and build relationships and do it with the right intent and act with integrity, it builds a brand over time and it's not sort of a one-off 
transaction, it's actually sort of long lasting. I remember actually going with a whole New Zealand delegation in 2011 to Silicon Valley and we pitched about 15 VCs in a room and we all got our slide decks up and like pitched it. In hindsight, that's not the way you're going to raise money. <laughs> you know, and then next time we did coffees and the beauty about setting the target out fundraising in three months time, I did all the coffees in the first month and then I treated all those investors like they were already an investor. I send them an update every two or three weeks. Hey, by the way, we just got press and CNN. Hey, we just launched this. We're just here's a prototype of something cool we're working. We just signed two new customers. By the time I got to the third month, I'd already interacted with those investors half a dozen to a dozen times. And I'd sort of de-risked it in their mind. Instead of this being the big leap of faith from a relationship point of view, I'm giving them points along the way. I've treated them well. They know that I'm a reliable communicator. I'm always giving them updates. And then by the time we went out to raise, at Carnival, we raised in one week. We were oversubscribed and we had Google and CMO Salesforce, Mike Lazarow and Dave Tish from Techstars in New York and Gary Vaynerchuk and Flybridge, one of the big VCs out of Boston. It was such a great group of VCs and we were very lucky to have them. But it was those good warm intros, doing right by those intros and then treating them as if they're an investor before they're an investor. The question that might be in people's minds is if you have a young entrepreneur, it's Kiwi, that's happy to get on a plane, I think number one is you have to get on the plane sooner than you think to the United States if you haven't been there to start to get a sense for what's going on. You don't have to spend a lot of time, but you probably have to do it a lot sooner than you think. And make sure you're active on LinkedIn. I don't think I've seen a region in the world that is more active on LinkedIn than New Zealand. It's really remarkable. So you should be able to use LinkedIn to find the Kiwis or the expats, what you would do is take a look at one of the colleges like King's College or Christ College. You'll find out that's something that people proudly add to their LinkedIn profile where they went to high school slash college. And then you can start to do things to figure out how can I get an introduction to people to actually get those coffee meetings. The other thing is when you do go into those meetings, you don't just show up. You actually need to have some level of preparation that when that person meets with you, they feel that what you're doing is something special. Raising their confidence level is very important. Just like, hey, we're building something that's the best in the world. You're not chest stopping, you're just stating the facts. Then when you do that, you think about going to meet with this person again in three months, six months, nine months, and you want to be able to come back and say, yeah, we did that and we did this. That means on one hand, you want to be confident you're the best in the world, but at the same time, you want to have that expectation management. The other thing that I would throw out there is the scale of the US market relative to New Zealand, it's really difficult to express it. So for anybody that's an engineer, you think about orders of magnitude like 10x, 10x, it's like 100x larger, two orders of magnitude. And it's not just on the customer size, the scale and the size of the market, but it's on the investors. Whereas in New Zealand, in your early days, you're probably going to build a syndicate with multiple local investors. Maybe they do more deep tech, but overall, the investors in New Zealand are pretty generalist at the early stage. In the United States, you have people that might just completely focus on robotics or completely focus on AI or completely focus on a given area. And within that area, there could be dozens of firms finding that fit is incredibly important. And also understanding that it's a shots on goal game, which is you're probably going to be able to get more and more and more and more meetings, but 
you need to find the investor that is interested and intrigued and the right fit for what you're doing. Because you could probably spend two years in fundraising meetings the entire time the scale of capital is high. So it's finding the right people to meet with and build those relationships. That's the preparation piece of it. How do these New Zealand companies demonstrate the kind of scale that these investors are really looking for? To make it pretty simple, US-based customers, there may be some people that disagree with me, but that is the easiest, simplest, most straightforward way to demonstrate to a US investor. And one of the things that will happen is if you have a few great lighthouse customers in the United States, quite often people are really connected, especially if it's a tech company, they'll call over there and they'll find out what do you think. And when they have that call and they understand that New Zealand company, one was considered the best in the world at whatever it is, then it gets elevated pretty dramatically. That bridge is incredibly important. So there is a question of getting to know the US investors and understanding what you're doing but the moment at which a U.S. investor will write a very significant check, it does tend to be a higher bar than it is for an earlier stage U.S. company. And my view is having that traction in the U.S. with customers is probably the most important thing. I agree with that, Rob. When I did my first fundraising round with Carnival, I didn't have that experience in fundraising. It's my first time raising in the States. And so to Rob's earlier point of doing things quicker, getting to the U.S. quicker, we went too long bootstrapping, which is a, a thing that happens a lot with New Zealand companies. And it can be positive, can be negative, but I'd say a lot of the time, the longer you delay the turbo switch, if it's a good idea and it's a good market, there's probably funded companies in the States already chasing it and sprinting at it. And so the longer you bootstrap to think in your mind, I've got to have this perfect idea of a product with X amount of customers, then I'm going to go talk to the investors. You've probably left it a bit late. And I think with something like Carnival, we left it to the point where we were doing seven figures in revenue prior to fundraising. So when we fundraised, they're like, oh, you've already got CNN, Oreo, Coke, DreamWorks as clients on your SaaS product. To do a seed round or an angel round when you've already got a product, got seven figures of revenue, you've probably left it too late. We were probably a year or so later to market than we should have been. And the ultimate end goal, that costs us massively. We sold the company, but we missed the early mover advantage, which a couple of companies like Braze got and Braze IPO'd for multi-billion dollars. We didn't have that level of exit. We were following behind. You can leave it too late trying to be a perfectionist. Rob, earlier you talked about the introduction you got from Movac. Is it best for a New Zealand company to have a New Zealand investor on board first before approaching US investors? Or how do you think about that dynamic? I think it's pretty much required to find local investors. Or if you have angels locally that can support you enough at the earliest stages for a New Zealand-based company, I think that'll change over time. And I would put in there Blackbird as well. So even though it's nominally an Australian fund, they're known as being a large investor in Canva. And given the scale and the magnitude and the speed with which Canva is built, I think it has some significant rub-off effects for when people are framing New Zealand to their partners. And Rob, it's like that de-risking, the leap of faith of an investor or someone buying a product. If you have those local investors, you've got some logos. It all adds to that de-risking in the mind of the investor of like, okay, these guys are legit. They've raised from a great VC that has a reputation that scaled a multi-billion dollar company like Canva. 
it just makes life easier. You turning up in New York with a napkin, you know, you're not going to get far unless you've already sold the company or moved there. If you've moved yeah. there, then you're like any other immigrant in the US. But if you're building it in New Zealand, you really need to have local investors. That's true. And I think that's where maybe myself, I actually got that advantage of, hey, I'm in New York. I'm living here. The company's going to be based here. The threshold would have been higher if I'd said, hey, I was in New Zealand. And I'm thinking I'm coming out on trips. They always stress test that point. They're like, is one of the founders moving here? Like you always hear that from Google, Lara Hippo, like all those ones in New York. We refer to that as skimming stones. And we find a lot <laughs> of investors don't like to see companies skimming stones. They want to see that commitment to market. So once they're in market, how can these New Zealand companies go about building and scaling their networks? And Guy, I know you've been a huge proponent of doing that up in the US. Can you give us just a bit of a thumbnail on how you think about that? One of my passions is I like meeting people and introducing people. And I think there's a real art to a good intro. A good intro is where you introduce someone, let's say a New Zealand company, to a US big corporate. And the New Zealand company solves a real problem. And then out of that intro, the corporate goes, wow, thank you so much for making that intro. And then the New Zealand company is like, wow, thank you. We got our first US client. Everyone kind of wins out of it. There's like a real warm, happy goodwill factor that's built. Building the network is the long game of building relationships and helping people. And I think building community. And I think you see this on social media now. The idea of just buying Facebook and Google ads is just a race to the bottom. It's expensive. It's just a hard game to win on. And now people are going, oh, we actually have to invest in brand and we need to invest in community. Do you look at something like in the direct-to-consumer space, something like Glossier came off them just doing a blog, but that blog got 10 million readers. And then every product they released, they had millions of customers buying it because it sort of built this community. So I've obviously done that with Playwide Meetup. And so if a New Zealand company is going to New York, last Friday of every month, if they turn up, there'll be 30 to 50 Kiwi startup techie people and you'll get plugged straight in. And the idea of that is you should always meet someone new at the meetup and you should always try and help someone. Instead of paying it forward, I got the advantage of that. I got intros from Rod Carr to Mark Darcy at Facebook to CNN to landing a contract. I've been the beneficiary of it and we try and pay it forward a whole group of it and we've built a good community there. The beauty is you go there, you go to Denver where NZT has got a big presence. There's about 50 New Zealand companies there. San Francisco, there's some really good communities you can plug in. I think of rewinding when I was 23 and turning up it's 16 years ago in Silicon Valley and I knew no one, I knew no one in New York. Now you shouldn't really have to make those cold calls and that. And that's the original idea behind things like Kia as well. The Kia network, the NZT network, Flat White, there's just so many great ways that you don't have to trailblaze a blind path anymore or make cold calls. There's people that can help. Even when it's not building your sales network, these things all open doors and you treat people well, pay it forward and build relationships and good things happen. There's a phrase that I think of with this, which is you must be present to win. Zoom works well when you meet with people in person and there's some ratio between the two. What that means for a Kiwi entrepreneur, if you're serving the US market is it's a minimum of three times a year. It might be four or five times a year. You got on a plane and you make it a, a seven day, 10 day trip and you yeah. figure out what are the right cities? Where do I go? You set it up probably about two to three months in advance. There might be times a year when it's easier to get meetings than others. I've certainly learned the opposite coming to New Zealand. There are times a year when I come here, lots of people available. If I come between 
Christmas Eve and mid-January, I could not overstate <laughs> how widely dispersed everybody becomes in New Zealand. There's the equivalent when you look at the U.S. as well. So it kind of means don't necessarily come when the weather is best, but have that regular cadence. And it also makes it easier to get that networking meeting. To get the second meeting, it needs to have been something that was worthwhile. Yeah. And I'd say one little tip here is I would often try and schedule as many of those meetings as possible prior to booking the flight. I'd say, hey, I'm going to be in LA in a month's time. Are you guys going to be around that week? And they're like, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm away. That I'm going to be there the next week. That's great. That's going to work out. I'm actually probably going to be there that week too. I'll book for the second meet. I'll often do that. I've done that so many times because obviously you're cash strapped and you're time poor and you sort of have to make a high ROI of that trip because the last thing you want to do is flown over for a month. And then if I, I was there a week later, I could have met the head of buyer at Walmart and I wasn't there. You should probably change your trip so that you are there. Good advice. Yeah, very good advice. I love that. You must be present to win and there's an art to a good intro. I just want to throw one more piece into that. As investors, you have huge numbers of people wanting to get in front of you, have that meeting, have that coffee, talk to you about their business. And I don't know whether it's the Kiwi humbleness or something like that, but often we will err on the side of caution or conservatism about not wanting to waste people's time than actually putting ourselves forward. How important is it to get on the radar early? It's very important. The warm intros, in my view, are extremely important. Sometimes you could do a cold intro, but you really have to have a reason for reaching out to somebody where you've done your research and there's a reason to connect. Really what you want is a warm one along with a good reason to connect. And it could be in the early stages, I'm interested in advice. And if you have a strong connection between you and the person you want to talk to, you'll send that person an email or a message on LinkedIn and you'll say, hey, could you see if this person would be willing to meet with me when I'm in San Francisco or when I'm in Seattle? And then you have something that is tailored that they can forward to that person that explains exactly why you'd like to meet with them. Those are the types of things that you need to do. And then when you have the meeting, and this will sound like a simple thing, there will be some follow-ups out of that meeting. And having good follow-ups will be incredibly important for whether you actually can deepen the relationship or not. You don't want to create work for the person you're meeting with either. You want them to be excited about something. So quite often the follow-ups mean it's something that you're doing afterwards for the person you met with. Yeah. And I'd say this is an area where I think New Zealand companies don't do a good job of the post-follow-up. If an investor doesn't invest, I've seen a lot of New Zealand companies where if the investor says no or like, hey, you're a bit early or maybe the next round, then there's a chasm of six to 12 months where the investor just doesn't hear from that startup again. And you're sort of like, you started building a relationship just because they didn't invest in this round. That's an opportunity. You should build on that, not just throw it away. They don't treat those investors with the same respect. It's sad to see because they're shooting themselves in the foot because then when they suddenly try and do their Series A in 12 months' time, they go back out and they've had no contact with that investor in 12 months. They're like, okay, you, you've got some progress, but like, yeah, I haven't heard from you. <laughs> and the thing I would build on there is I, when I was talking about the scale before, so the scale of the US market, the scale of the investors there, when you're in New Zealand, there might be like six local venture firms that really matter in terms of size, scale, ability to back you, have real influence. In the US, it's hundreds, if not thousands. So what that means is, you're going to have 10 meetings and understand 
that out of those 10 meetings, you fully expect that like three, four or five of them are just going to go radio silent. This gets to one of the biggest things you were talking about the confidence piece, but I think it's an ability to handle rejection and not care. That is something that is sometimes difficult for Kiwis to get their arms around. Rejection is okay. Indifference is fine. And it's more of a statistical game where you're looking for that one or two or three investors. You're not looking to convince everybody to want to engage with you. Yeah. That's almost that stigma of failure or rejection. That's something that Kiwi culture originally wasn't the best at. Someone's startup fails and then suddenly they think they're a failure. When in actual fact in the US, it's quite the opposite. It's like, wow, you've had that experience. You're going to learn from that. I sort of look at someone like Keith Davison from Paloma in Auckland, who's amazing. He sold cloud conformity to Trend Micro for was a $100 million exit a couple of years ago. And he had multiple startups that didn't succeed, but they all led to the learning. And then when they got to cloud conformity, they executed that company in like two years to over a $100 million exit from zero to selling so quick. It would be very hard for most people to be able to do that if you'd not had those failures along the way. You win or you learn. The only punctuation I put on that is you still have to work really hard. It isn't like it's a statistics (laughs) game and you just throw stuff against the wall. You actually have to work just as hard in terms of the input into the meetings. You just have to be willing to tolerate failure. At times, I've noticed Kiwi entrepreneurs will talk about work-life balance, but the reality is you're competing against people around the world that are working pretty close to 24 by 7 and just have that in mind. When you go into meetings in the US, you'll probably have Saturday, Sunday meetings everywhere you go, especially when you're in the US, being all in, all on is going to be pretty important. If you could offer one piece of advice for New Zealand businesses looking to raise capital in the US, what would it be? And Rob, I'm going to throw to you first. Number one, does it have to be water? Can I say too? Get US customers before raising the money in earnest. And two is work your networks and talk to people that you know in your network to get the warm introductions to those investors in the US. I mean, be prepared. I'd probably add like, sometimes we're a little bit reserved in New Zealand and you just need to get on a plane. You got to go do those meetings. And I think people delay and delay and delay. And they think that there's going to be this perfect timing where the business looks great and all the metrics are perfect and then they're going to raise. And to Rob's point earlier, people delay things too much. Getting out to market earlier and often. I used to live on planes. You'd go instantly to Gold Elite. I wasn't flying business. I'm flying economy the whole time, but I was flying a lot. And I was trying to generate reasons that would give a good ROI of the trip. If you go there, it's like, cool, I'll try and meet five customers. I'll get three intros from those people. I'll host the dinner. If I can't afford to host the dinner because it's two grand, I'll host a breakfast. It's only $400. If I can't afford the breakfast, I'll do a coffee meetup. There's no real barrier. A two and a half grand flight to New York or two grand flight to Silicon Valley. You can make a lot out of that and you learn from it. Getting to market early and often is very, very helpful. Rob, Guy, thank you so much for joining us here today. You've given us a real insight into the US market, how to approach investors, when to go, how to prepare, and the importance of networking. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Dylan. A lot of fun. And it's a privilege to be able to be interviewed alongside Rob, who is now an honorary Kiwi uh, in the startup community here and doing amazing things. Thank you, Rob, as well, for all the stuff you're doing, trying to connect New Zealand to the US. 
it's a huge step up for a lot of companies. Very helpful and appreciated of all the work you do. Thank you for the kind words, both of you. It's been a real pleasure getting to know the ecosystem a lot better. And I'm quite impressed and excited about where it's all headed. It's on a really, really exciting trajectory. So Dylan and team, thanks for having me on today. This podcast was brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Visit us at investnewzealand.nz or follow us on LinkedIn for more tools and resources to help you on your way with raising capital.